0: Thanks everyone. Um, This is a new one for me, uh, so I haven't done this kind of workshop before. I I trialed it out last week in the office to see how it goes, but let's see how it goes. But please interact with me, I'll I'll pause for questions as I go along. what I found is that I'm gonna, there's a little bit too little time for this for, to cover everything in the session. So the first bit I'll skip over a bit. So the data preparations I'll skip over a bit because they, you know, it's just too much detail to cover in, in an hour and 15 minutes and now we have reduced time. So I'm gonna skip a bit over the data preparation. I'll briefly go over that. But before I get going, who actually um, installed everything before today? Can you raise your hands? Okay, it's about half of you. Who managed to work somewhat during the, through the examples? Okay, so some of you worked through examples, okay. So, um, if you don't have the material, please um, please pop me an email, it's alrissot, so it's spelled like that, alrissot at genre.com, G-E-N-R-E dot com. I'll pop you the, the full worksheet so you can actually work through it maybe afterwards. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm going to work through this. What I email you is this document. Did everybody receive this, this document? At least those who registered. Yeah. Okay. So this document is basically generated by our code. And I'm just going to show you how we work through this, through this document and, and show you what, what we covered there. So the first thing is what we cover in this, in this, in this code is data preparation. We cover feature engineering. We cover a regression example, we cover a decision tree example, and we cover a random forest example. The most important bit for me is actually the last bit, which is how do we measure the performance of these models? Um, and how do we assess which models are better than others? Because I think um, the, the, t- the technology behind the models will change over time, and they'll, they'll become better and worse, and new techniques will be found in neural networks and all that. But as an actuary, I do believe that understanding which models are good, is better, you know, good for a particular set of data is more important than understanding all the technical details of the modeling techniques because eventually they'll change anyway and you'll get some new techniques. Okay, so I want to focus on that part particularly because there's quite a few insights I think that I share there just about thinking about this. Um, The session focused on the survival data of the Titanic. Okay, so which passengers survived the sinking of the Titanic? And the and the and the question we're trying to answer is to trying to predict who survived, who survived that, who survived that. Now that's a categorical outcome. That's a yes no or a zero one or a, 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 a you know it's a class outcome. It's not a it's not a gr- mortality graduation where you have exposure and deaths. It's a yes no outcome. It's not a it's not a regression where you're trying to fit a numerical value. You're actually trying to to classify correctly, and that's what you call a classification problem. Okay. So that's what I covered there. This is also an example of supervised learning. So it's an example of um, where you have an outcome that you're trying to fit. There are other machine learning techniques which are not focused on a specific outcome. Clustering, for example, tries to uh, group data, uh, group a data set by similar features, but it d- doesn't have a specific outcome in mind. Okay. So that's something to be... So what we focus on a very small niche of machine learning. We focus on supervised classification problem. OK. So this is just all the stuff to get started, all the instructions installing R and Studio. If you haven't done it, just work through this and, and get it installed, and, and you, will, you should be able to get going on that. And there's two packages we install R, which is the language, and R RStudio desktop, which is the interface, which is a nice friendly interface for working with R, and we use some of those features. So there's lots of tutorial stuff there to get yourself started with R. If you're brand new to R, please please spend some time with that. Um, I can't really teach R as well, so <laughs> yeah. Um, but this should at least get you comfortable with, with, with getting started with R. This is a notebook. This is a file that, um, that, uh, that shows code um, as well as executes the code. So at the moment I'm showing the HTML generated output of that code, I'm gonna switch now to the actual code so that we can actually start interacting with it, okay. So you'll see this is exactly the same document, just a bit more geekily formatted, right? So let's just get to where we were, what is a notebook? So a notebook is something that has code in it, this section is code, um, that you can run. Firstly, once I, firstly, what I'm gonna do is gonna run all the bits before this, but I, don't think, I think this is the first bit of code. What this does is just shows you output from code. You see, I just ran that piece of code, and right below it, it shows me the output, right? Very useful. And you can work like that. This cars, this just shows a cars data set, which is built into R. It's an example data set in R, which is used for examples, and we can also do graphs. So that's how this works. If you get further down and you haven't run all the bits before, because the last, this, these bits are dependent on each other, so just click on that and it will run all the chunks of code before that. Okay. So that's just something useful. So I'm going to work down um, to here. The, I set a random seed just to make the code reproducible. So if you're using exactly the same version of R in exactly the same packages as I am using, you will get exactly the same results. Um, This just sets the random number generator to a certain value to make sure the results are, a certain starting value to make sure the results are are reproducible. Um, Data prep, I'm just gonna download the data quick. I'm gonna run everything up into here. Just make sure I've run everything. And then this bit of code actually downloads the data. It might not actually work. It does work, I am online. So that just downloads the data file. If you couldn't download the data file using that code, Um, Corporate firewalls often block uh, R. You just manually download it and save it with a name, with that exact name in the same folder that the script is located, okay? Okay, so that that downloaded the file. This file contains various fields, so if you've prepared it, it's got stuff like passenger class, sex, age, um, cabin, fare, and various fields. Um, Some of these fields we shouldn't be using as predictors. Those two fields in particular are are the lifeboat number and the body number. When they found bodies, they numbered the bodies. Um, of course, we shouldn't be using that because it's going to be highly predictive of survival, right? Because it's a field that's after the fact. So that's something that you, you think it's a stupid thing to say, but often when, you, when you're doing data analytics, some fields like that can often creep into your analysis. I've had real life examples where I've looked at somebody's modeling or looked at uh, or started putting in a variable in myself in a model. and. Um, and uh, uh, what turned out to be a, a, a field that was actually uh, correlated with death. So trying to predict death and, and it turns out they only fill in this particular field once the person has died. So that, and then you use that field, let's say it was, uh, I don't know, postcode. Um, they only fill the postcode in once the person has died because they send a letter to the family and then that that, that data field is irrelevant, you can't use it, right? So be careful of that kind of thing. Um, what I go through here is just a bunch of summarization of, of the data. So what you can do here is you can summarize the data. Uh, that's exciting. I'm just rerunning everything. So, um, so that just summarizes the data in various things. So each field in the data is summarized either with a, me- a minimum uh, first quartile median, Quartile, average, all that sort of stuff. Or for categorical ones, it gives you the counts for each category. So you see there's 800 males, 400 females, etc. So a lot of the next bits I'm going to skip over now because this this is just looking, uh, uh, exploring the data somewhat. So from this above, you can see the averages and all that. Um, We have to deal with missing values. So what we do is we just assign the median age to people with missing ages, we assign certain classes to people from certain decks or we assign decks to certain people from certain classes, depending on on how we deal with missing values. So I'm just gonna skip over that, we'll run it now. Another bit that's interesting and useful is trying to engineer features in your data, right? Um, So what I do here is I see that there's a title, and just run everything up into here. And I see there are titles in the name field. So now maybe we can generate a new field from this title. Our name is very complicated, but if we're very clever we can extract those titles out of, the, out of the name and use that as additional field. This kind of process is called feature engineering, trying to extract more information out of it. Sometimes it's a lot more complicated. You might combine several features, several data columns in your field and generate a new data column based on those. And that, that's a similar process, okay. So that's what I do here. So, so we, we extract the title here. I'm, I'm gonna not run all the code now, I'm just gonna run it in one big time. Then we end up with lots of funny titles, so we then aggregate them together. Um, you know, Some of the more different ones we, we group together um, and consolidate that. And we do a lot of work on that. Similarly, we create a family size variable from the number of siblings and the number of children and parents, we create a family size variable as well. Okay. We also create a deck variable, yes? Yeah. Easy to do it's a column with yeah. This is an yeah. So we're not dealing with unstructured data here. We're dealing with a structured data problem. So this is not a free text analysis or anything like that. At the end of the day, to apply these techniques, you need to get your data into uh, into a table with an with an outcome and columns of features. We, what the the kind of stuff that people do with unstructured data is to take, for example. Let's say there was the, the journal entries for each passenger or something like that. We would text mine that, we maybe use cluster analysis to group the different journal entries into, 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 uh, into classes of journal entry, and we generate a field out of that, and then we might use that as an input on, on, on our modeling here. Okay. So that's all the work that you do before you get to this point. Um, similarly, I derive a cabin number. We'll see that it's not very well populated. And then lastly, we convert everything to factor v- levels. Um, R has a numerical field, R has a, a factor field. Those kind of fields are what you can use in a, in a, in a, in a model. You can't use free text in a model, okay? So that, that's just what this does. So I'm just gonna run everything up until this point. Any questions on the data prep? I, I, want, I know I skipped over it lightly. Please let me know. Good, okay. The last step of the, of, the, of the data prep is to split my data into a training set and a, and a testing set. We wanna make sure that our model is actually fitting the data appropriately. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna take 70, 25% of our data and leave it out completely. From this point onwards, we're gonna leave it aside do all our modelling on the on the on the rest of the data, and at the end check how good our model predicts this 25%. That tells us that our model is actually can can actually accurately predict on data that it hasn't seen before. Okay, does that make sense? You should always do this to, um, especially with some machine learning techniques. Um, it's not really always necessary for statistical models, where statistical models has explicit distributions assigned to them, and if they are valid, you you unlikely to you're less likely to overfit, put it that way. But with um, machine learning methods, some of them are prone to overfit the data. And if you overfit the data, you're you're gonna not predict accurately. I'll show you an example of overfitting as well. Later in the example, there's an example around overfitting. Okay. So that just takes a sample and creates a vector. And then we split our data based on that vector. So now over here you should see already we've got a bunch of fields in here we have a our original data and we have 982 training observations and we have 327 testing observations depending on your random number it might be one or two out and you might have slightly slightly different slightly different um, well you have the same number it might be different observations okay so where are we now the rest of the code then just so I also, there's further data exploration that I do now um, because sometimes you are influenced yourself by looking at the data, right? So I'm exploring e- even only on the training data set now. I've done some initial exploration, I cheated a little bit, but, but for the most part, my data exploration I'm gonna do on the training set because if I decide how I'm gonna fit my model based on what I see, then effectively, if I use the test data for that as well, I'm, 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 I'm biasing the outcome to some degree. Do you get that? Okay, so the rest is a bunch of data explorations. Um, we are looking at, um, uh, uh, yeah, statistics, plots, lots of different kinds of plots. This is more for you to see what, what is possible and how you can do it. So just, this is just an intro in terms of the graphing and stuff like that. I will quickly run all that and maybe just see if there's any questions on that. Just, as, just using this last one as an example, this is, um, this is a histogram, well, this is a, a histogram with fare, by fare, so most of the people paid less than 10 pounds, some people paid between 10 and 20 pounds, etc. cetera, um, and, and the survival for each of those fare, fare bins, right? You'll see um, survival if your fare was below 10 pounds was not as great as, you, as if as survival was above 20 pounds, let's say. Yeah? You can see that ratio of those two numbers are are, are a lot different. So already we're starting to get an inkling of the survivals. Maybe just jumping back a bit, here's title and survival. Um, You can see the misters, if your title was a mister, you didn't really have a good chance to make it. Even the masters, the younger boys had had poor odds, Uh, and missers made it, so we need to uh, get Nene onto them, right? Okay, so this is the bit that I really wanted to focus on. So, um, before, but before I do any questions on the data prep, this far, anybody struggle with with some of it? Any questions on that? No. Okay. Cool. Um, so the first bit we get to is a is a general linear model. This is the. Some people wouldn't call it machine learning, but I wanted to include include it into this so that we can see how this would look. Uh, this is a generalized linear model with a uh, um, so diff- typically a linear model assumes normalized normal distributions in of the of the outcome, right, or or, or similar. Um, But what we have is a categorical outcome with a yes, no, or survive zero, one, I think it is in this case. So we can't assume normality there. It's a binomial distribution. And what the trick of most general general linear model is, is to transform the outcome somehow to get back to normal in the linear term. Now for logistic outcomes, for yes, sorry, for yes, no outcomes, we use a logistic transformation. And and that's a logistic function, which is a log over a log, I think, or one, one over e. You know, I can't even remember the function. It just transforms the data so it, it, that it becomes normier, normal in the linear term. Um, so this is, sorry, I jumped back. So this is what we do here. We tell it fit a, this is the function that creates a general linear model. We say we want to model the survived outcome. And we want to use these variables for a, for a GLM, that is ex- essentially the structure of our model, in the, when, once it's transformed. It means literally we're gonna take the gender multiplied by a factor plus the title multiplied by a, a factor or a coefficient, and the family size, et etc. et cetera. That's the structure of our model. So we predefined the structure of our model after transformation as being linear and additive, okay? So that's, that's a very clear thing. So that's why it's a generalized linear modeling. Okay, here we tell it the outcome is binomial, yes, no, survived, survived or not. And that link function is a legit function. And that tells us it's a legit transformation to, to get to be used. So if we run that, that code doesn't produce any output, it just stores the model in that variable. And at the bottom, we can now summarize our model. Okay, so now we have a model. And what we've done is, um, I just wanna explain some things here. This is actually giving us an estimate for the coefficient in the linear model. So the first one is the intercept. Remember remember when you fit a line through something, you have to have an intercept, right? And then you have the various slopes for all the other factors, okay? Um, uh, What it does do, however, is it does add, um, so you see title here is actually four or five fields there, right? Because you need a for each factor in title, you need a separate coefficient, okay so that's, it automatically does it for you. It drops one of the levels, so you 'll see master is not there, so master is now the reference level. all the other titles are set with reference to master, or you could think about it as master is included in the intercept it 's another way to think about it so um, if you want so this already tells you. Um, there's something strange going on because now all of a sudden misses are less likely to survive. You can see that, because it's negative, right? So a miss is less likely to survive than a master, but we know that it's probably not right. But if we start looking at these p-values, these are the values that say, tells you how likely is it that the, the, uh, uh, the, the, out the, the parameter is close to zero. And you can see some of these p-values are very high. So it tells us those, those values aren't significant we probably need to tune our model a little bit to, to improve that. So that's what I do in the next step. I drop a lot of these values that are not significant and I, and I get to a, a, a less, less complicated model. So you'll see what I've done here is I've made the model less complex, I dropped a lot of the fields in my model, okay? Now there's various ways to do that. Here I've done it manually. You could do something like step runs to let a machine decide which variables to drop based on various information criterion. So you can do a kai keys information criterion, etc., etc. I'm not gonna cover that. You, when you're doing this, you just need to be careful of p-hacking, right? Remember that that's a 5% confidence interval. If you have 100 variables, some of them will be wrong because the p-value is not valid. So you can play around with that too much and essentially overfit your model again, even with the generalized linear model, okay? You guys follow him? Any questions? Yes. Hi, so from Score here. In terms of the reference model, I know that R, and if you use SAS, um, it, sele- it pre-selects a reference model for your base the model. Reference, you the reference, value, in the, the v- factor levels, yeah. yeah. You so can no, assign your own. Can you decide your own? You can I mean, decide yourself. Is it best practice to use whatever um, Factors you see the most of in the data set? To I typically try and use one of the biggest ones, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, in this case, Master is a nice choice because it's one of the biggest ones. It's not the biggest one. I think Mister is probably the biggest one, but yeah, I was quite happy to leave it at Master. Typically, it shouldn't make a difference, but um, if you choose a very odd one, all those confidence tests, those p value tests, will be for an odd v- value. Let's say one of them was a really differ- different from the rest. Um, then all, you, all the tests will be significant, even those, even though those variables are close to each other, right? So you could also play with the levels. You could group together levels. If, if uh, Mr. and Miss was very similar, you could have grouped them together as well. But again, you need to be careful of p-hacking. Yeah. So what I've done here is just done a simple model. Um, and I summarize it straight below, and this looks a little bit better. We can see more values values are significant. Um, I, I don't always get, make sure that everything is significant because, again, p-hacking, um, but this makes sense to me. It's something I can explain to somebody. I can say, you know, the, this makes sense. Um, yeah, and that's, that's how I go through that. Um, I, the only one that doesn't make sense to me is maybe Embarked but that's perhaps a mix of passenger or a socioeconomic group, different socioeconomic groups on different ports, might be explaining that. Um, Age is also there, not very significant, but again, you can see survival did decrease in general with age. Perhaps we can split age profile by gender. That might be an interesting feature to engineer or an interaction to model. Um, I haven't shown interaction modeling here because you can actually model interactions between variables. Um, But it becomes complicated to specify and the machine learning techniques help us with that because it explores all the possible interactions or a lot of possible interactions. Okay. I'm gonna jump over that. Um, Because the advantage of a a generalized linear model is that um, the, the parameters of each of those factors tell us something that we can intuit, we can actually think about, right? So we can interpret those factors. With, machine le- with more uh, true machine learning techniques, we can't actually um, understand those factors, okay? So um, we, we usually don't look at those factors even. So what we see here is um, when you do a binomial model with a, le- with a legit transform, the factors become, tell you what the odds ratios are, okay? Other transformations means the, the numbers tell you something slightly different. With a Poisson model, which is a usually exponential transformation, the factors tell you the multipl- you can work out what the multiplier effect is on the final rate that you're predicting. With a, with a logistic model and a, and a binomial logistic model, um, you get uh, the odds ratios. It's the ratio of the odds. So the ratio of survival for a miss is 20% higher than for a master. This is what this is telling us. The ratio of, s- the odds of surviving for a for a one one uh, if your family size increases by one, the the ratio of survival is 35%. The odds for survival is 35% lower. So the bigger families didn't people from bigger families were less likely to survive. Um, if you embark from one of these ports, you were less likely to survive. The odds of you surviving reduced. So this is this is what's the advantage of linear models. It allows you to interpret things quite nicely, eh? Um, okay, similarly with age, there was a two, with each year of age in, 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 in increase, your, your um, probability, your odds of surviving dropped by 2%. Okay, The um, so you can see that sometimes you wanna have a numerical variable as a one, not as a factor. So age here is a linear function. Sometimes you want it as a factor. So for example, I, I, we don't have, passenger class in this model, but if we had passenger class, I would have preferred to put it as a, as a, as, as a three-level factor rather than as a continuous variable because the jumps from class one to two to three is not necessarily linear. It might be steeper or flatter, or, and we don't really understand how that is. There's a special of variable that you can also create which is an ordinal variable, which is passenger class one and two and three have an order, but we don't know how big the jumps are. Um, I'm not showing an example of that. Um, so, so the model takes information about the fact that they are um, they are ordered, but the, but it doesn't use the, inform- the the step necessarily between them. So I'm not sure if I'm explaining that very well. Um, so that's just an example of the odds ratio. I'm going to jump over that, and that's another. That's I've explained all of this already. So for one. As your fare increased, your odd ratio was for every pound in, of increase in fare, your odds ratio improved by 1%. Okay, as well. So, what we do now, now we have the um, we have a model, we can actually predict the outcomes using that model. So, what this is doing is it's taking our model on the existing data set and adding to that existing data set a column called predict probability GLM, okay, because we're gonna add more columns later, okay. So that's just running the prediction on the data that we trained. And I'm gonna leave looking at the testing data till last. I'm just gonna show you how this looks. And now what I do here is just do a little plot of our model, which I find quite interesting. So at the bottom, I've grouped, um, uh, uh, the heading is not very clear, I've grouped um, by bands of prediction and I've measured the survival ratio for each of those bands, okay? Uh, You'll see that it doesn't look, a perfect model would be perfectly on the diagonal area, right? But we have to remember that our data is not evenly distributed in these bands. We have different groups of people that have different, you know, we have a lot of people in a certain band, so there there are other ways to plot it, I just wanted to show you this as well. So even though the model is probably poorly fitting here, there might not be a lot of people there, okay? And just for later use, I'm just going to run this as well. That just does the same, but it creates a column on the test data set. So it runs a prediction on the test dataset and we store it for later. Okay. Any questions on the GLM? Cool. How am I doing for time? Mm. Yeah, when, when do we need to end? 11.40. Oh, great. We have lots of time. Okay. Um, so we we, we we have till 11.40, apparently. So uh, Sorry, I, I'm updating that. I think we'll end before that, but if you want to chat with me afterwards or whatever, we should be fine. Okay. So in the next model I'm going to do is a decision tree model. Now, I think I'm um, well. A decision a decision tree model works um, by splitting your data, okay, and and continuing that recursively. So what it does, it tries and find a split based on any va- value in any of the variables in your data that splits the surviving passengers and the non surviving passengers as much as possible. It measures the genie. Um, what, what does it call it? The genie impurity. In each, in each of the resultant splits. So essentially what it does, this is my notional explanation of it, it splits, tries all the different splits of the data that it could possibly try. Male, female. Uh, Mister and miss on this side, and master and Misses on that side. It tries all those splits and it measures how impure the data is on each side. And it finds the result that results in the most pure data on each side of that split. Okay, and then it goes to each of those data sets and repeats the process. So it essentially creates two data sets and then it drills down into each of those and again finds the split that splits out the data most efficiently. Usually there's some stopping conditions that usually involve how much data am I left over in leaf. I don't wanna overfit by, by splitting two data points. right? If there's only two, peop- two people left in a, in a node, I don't wanna split that because that's not really gonna add much value. So I'll just show you how that looks when we run it. Oh, my alarm is going off and let me just turn off my internet before i get a uh, uh, sorry i might get more notifications uh, there we go um so what how you specify this model is um is you um again, it's very similar to the GLM. But however, this is not actually specifying the structure of the model. This is just a notional formula for saying which variables to include in the model. You're not actually saying it's an additive variable. You're not saying I'm gonna add the outputs of those two variables. It's just saying use these variables. That's all it's doing here. So this is not a predefined structure on the data. So just there's a notional difference, even though it looks exactly the same. Um, And we tell it it's a method class it's a classification problem. It's a one-zero problem. This this decision trees can actually handle multiple class categorical outcomes as well, not just not just two. You could have three or four or five classes of output as well, but that becomes a little bit head twisting to interpret when you when you're looking at those models. Okay, so let's just run that and did I run it now. Yeah, um, and let's just plot that model. So it's a little bit small, yeah? I might just switch to the, this version. Just, oh, uh, uh, this is not the right one. Sorry, don't worry about that. No, don't worry about that. So let's just look at that. So It's a little bit fuzzy with the resolution and stuff, but what you get is um, the first split. You can see what it's done is it said, if your title is Mr. or official, you go to the left. Other titles go to the other side. So this title variable we created is actually quite useful. That, that it says is the most important split, the first split that it would do. So that already tells you something. So decision trees are actually quite, it's one of the machine learning techniques that are easy to interpret. You can actually follow it, right? Um, so not all machine learning techniques are like, most are not, but, but this one is actually one that you can follow. So if, if you were a mister or, or an official, your probability of survival is only 16%, 0.16 and 60% of our data is on this side of the tree, okay? And it actually stopped there. It couldn't find any good enough splits after that point in time, based on the stopping conditions that's, that's default for the decision tree. On the right-hand side, it said 40% of our data, if you weren't a mister or official, um, you had a 70% chance of survival, okay? So that's already a massive split there, right? Um, and then it went further. It says, if you're a passenger of class three, the third class, it goes to the left. Your survival drops to 0.46 versus the 0.7. And on this side, your survival is 0.94. So basically, if you were a girl, not in third class, your chances were pretty good, okay? Um, and it continues like that. Family size is another split. Fair, fairs is used to split again. So you'll see that it doesn't necessarily use the same splits on each side of the tree. For each node, it decides a completely new split. Okay, and it ends up with these, with these leaves. The model would use as a prediction now, the P values, the probabilities of survival, these are the values that it'll use to predict. So it'll actually only predict six possible probabilities of survival for when it does the prediction. So it's using these survival probabilities now as the prediction probabilities. So when we give it the test data, it will assign one of those values to each of our test data points, depending on how it filters through the tree. Clear? Any questions on the decision tree thus far? Yeah. Lee, just the one question. Um, I mean, the model's deciding on the splits. Say you wanted a specific, you wanted to know about the probability for a specific group. Presumably you can pre-specify that in the... You you can explicitly explore it using the data exploration section there we do show you how to show probabilities. So you can look at the, one of the examples in there is the probabilities of males surviving versus females. You can calculate it from the data directly, like either you do it in a pivot table or you do it in R, you can do it as well. That's one way. You You can specify the criteria for useful splitting. You can specify criteria for stopping the splits. There is, in various ways, you can specify the depth, there's various stopping conditions that you can specify. In the model, you can't directly specify. I want this field to be used in this in this manner. But yeah, if you wanted to do that, you might as well not do modeling. You can just, or you can if you want to use your first split, you could split the data manually, and do two separate models on each side of that split. That's another way to do that, I guess. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Other questions? Okay. The the, the decision trees use the building block for the random forest, so. If you have questions now, (laughs) okay. So what we do here, we just do predictions both on the training data set and on the testing data set. Um, When the the predict of the decision tree actually produces a a probability for each outcome. So you'll see I'm just taking the second outcome, the second column of the prediction. So that's just telling, it's our way of saying, because this predict output, I can show you how it looks actually, if you do this. You can always run little bits of code here. So you see it produces two columns. The one is the prediction of for not surviving, and that's the one for surviving. Okay. And if you have multi-classes, it'll produce a column for each of those outcome classes. So if you have five possible outcomes, survive, injured, or, uh, or dead, you might have something like that, then you would have three probabilities there. Okay. Go okay, back to there, so that just picks a second column same with this one have I run this now so rerun it to make sure okay and now similar to what we did before we do that plot of the of the the predicted survival at the bottom with the actual survival in those bands we have to we now know explicitly that we're, that are that our probabilities aren't evenly distributed because we saw that there's only fo- six possible values for for the outcome so you'll see some gaps in here as well there's not there's not a 0.4 band here, for example. Okay. This looks, be, you know, to my eye, it looks a bit better than the, than the GLM already, right? Okay, so I, t- I spoke about over and underfitting. I just want to do some extreme cases so we can see how it looks when we evaluate our models, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm purposefully going to overfit data. Okay. So what I'm doing here, I'm, I'm doing the same model. But I'm am I'm, I'm I'm making my stopping conditions very generous, so my tree is going to explore a lot further. I I I I tell you what how you can investigate is you can actually press F1 on these. Uh, you might need to press F1 on the on the on on the on that, and you can explore what each of these parameters does. Um, the the complexity parameter, if you increase it, you have a more complex tree. The minimum split parameter says. How many nodes do I, how many data points do I need to have before I try to split it? So usually that's a bit bigger than five, right? So when we run this, I'll plot the model as well, and you'll see that the model is definitely a lot more complex. And given that we only have, what, 800, 980 cases, uh, you can't read that, and I can't read that either on my screen, but you get the sense that this is splitting the data in a lot more finer resolution, right? And given that we have 980, data points, that's definitely overfitting. You can think about that. That's gonna result in probabilities that are not you know, repeatable. It's just generated by random noise. It's fitting the noise is another way to describe it, okay? So that's one example. Oops. And then, oops. Then I'm gonna generate another model which underfits the data. And all I do there, I set the maximum depth of the tree to one. And all that does is generates a one-split model. That's the model. Okay. So that's definitely going to underfit. So we'll look at the performance of those things later. Let's just predict them. Okay. Any questions on the decision tree? Okay. So I'm going to ju- jump into the random forest. We had one tree. Now we're going to have a forest of trees, and that essentially explains to you. What a random forest is, in short. Um, the what you do with a random forest, you fit many different decision trees to the same data. Well, I'll, to the data, and you then take the prediction, the categorical prediction of each random tr- of each tree, and you count the number of votes. You count how many trees predict a survival, and you count how many trees predict a death, and you take the most. And you use those proportion actually as the predicted outcome score, or if you have a threshold, you pick which one of them is the biggest, or you know whatever your cutoff is. Does that intuitively make sense? The the bit that, that we're missing is if we use the same decision tree, if we if we use the same dates and the same variables for each decision tree, each decision tree will look exactly the same. So how do we mix up those decision trees? How do we um, we we stop? the decision trees being exactly the same. What, we, what, what, the, what, the, what the algorithm does, it choose a random subset of variables for each set of, for each tree. It also chooses a random subset of the data for each tree. Okay. So it, it, it mixes up the data and the variables all the time for each of these decision trees. The point of this is, is to stop, you know, decision trees inherently are likely to overfit data. Okay. They are, they t- you have to be very careful with these entries because they easily overfit the data if you use it. So what all this random shuffling is, is trying to keep, you know, keep it random in such a way that you actually average out the noise from, from the process. That's my high level intuitive description of it. I, can't, I don't have a technical description for it. But what, what it's doing is trying to average out the noise and making sure you end up with only stuff that truly follows the, the underlying characteristics of the data. So that's a, that's a high-level description of a, of a random forest. Oh, sorry, I jumped back a bit now. So a random forest looks exactly like a, <clears throat> like a, 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 all the other models, it looks exactly the same way. Um, a random forest needs to have a factor, not a numerical output when you fit it. So that's just something. So I'm using the factor version of 01, which says there's two levels. That factor could have been yes, no, you know, you could have used the words, or whatever the case may be, as long as this, you know, the the outcomes. Random forest can also predict uh, multiple categories of outcome, not just yes/no, okay, and just if I So I'm using these variables, but the, this this pluses tell me nothing about the structure of the model. It just says use these variables. It's not a structure of a model, okay? And I'm using the dot dra- dra- training data. Uh, let me just run that. By d- default, the random forest uses 500 trees. So it's actually generating 500 different different decision tree models, and and using that as as a as a, as a ensemble model. So I mean, I, the other thing that i forgot to mention is a random forest is an example of ensemble modeling technique. It's a modeling technique that puts together different models to form a bigger model. Okay, in this case, it's putting very the same models together, right? Gradient-boosted trees is another example of an ensemble method which puts, uses decision trees in a similar way to this, but um, the way it fits them and the way it adds them together is slightly different. Okay, So the random forest is actually a, uh, is a subset of gradient-boosted trees. Gradient-boosted trees is the higher-level algorithm. Um, uh, n- another way to do ensemble models is to to take completely different models and aggregate them. So you could do the GLM and the decision tree and add them together and average the score or something like that and generate a new model. That's also an ensemble model. And that's usually done manually, that kind of stuff. Okay. Just FYI on that. So <clears throat> what's nice about the random forest is that it, by default, it actually creates many training and test data sets within the training data set. Because for each for each tree, it's used a subset of the data. So what it actually tracks as part of the algorithm is the error rate on the for each tree on the data that that tree wasn't fit on. Right. So that's quite clever about it. So you can actually have what you call an out-of-bag error rate. It's the for each tree, the data that that tree wasn't fit on, track the error rate, and if we average all the error rates from all the different trees on the on the data that that specific tree wasn't fit on, we get an overall out-of-bag error rate. So really get a sense of how good the model would be on data that it hasn't seen before. It's an indication of that. So you can plot that, for example. So what we've done here, I'm just gonna focus on the black line, and that's the overall error rate by number of trees as it fits. So as you see, as the number of trees increase, the, the error rate falls, and it kind of stabilizes. So we're over-killing it a bit with 500. Uh, trees, we could probably use 100 or 200 trees as well and quite safely, because the error rate does does drop. The zero and the one is the error rate for survival and not survival, uh, death, uh, separately as well. So you can look at those as well. Sorry. Sorry, I'm jumping around. Um, But how do we interpret a random forest? Can you imagine how you would interpret all those decision trees? You have now 500 or 100 or 200 decision trees which you, you can't tell what it's doing to the data. And this is the problem of machine learning trees. There is something called an importance plot. This is an importance plot. It can tell you, you can numerically assign some score of importance to each variable. You can see how, how, um, how this is done is, is basically, um, you remember that we talked about the impurity when you split the trees, all right? So the reduction in impurity, this is essentially, roughly speaking, the sum of all the reductions in impurities in all the different trees for where that variable was used. That's what the title is there. So the title reduced the impurity between the different splits um, the most over all the different trees in our model. So that's a measure of importance, they call it importance, okay? So that indicates you how much was that variable used to reduce the the, the impurity overall. The actual number numerically doesn't mean much, so you you don't really look at it, but compared to the other variables you can say, well, title is probably more important than fair, and PR, which is the number of parents and children, is the least important. What you also see what we did here is we included family size, siblings, and parents counts. All right. Um, in the GLM, we couldn't do that because those variables are directly re- linearly related to each other. It'll cause an error if you include all three of them in your GLM because family size is the sum of siblings, spouses, um, and part, uh, your parents and children plus one. And that would tell you that, that, uh, 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 yeah, that you, you should only include the two base levels or the one combined one. So just an F1. So our title field is doing well, our fair field is doing well. The importance doesn't tell you anything about the direction of the variable. It just tells you how useful it is, right? It doesn't tell you title is a plus or a minus. It just says it's very useful or it's not very useful, okay? Okay, and then I'm just predicting on this. You you should note that the prediction of a random forest doesn't tell you truly about the probability of survival. counts the votes of the trees, whatever that means. It just tells you the proportion of trees voting for survival and the proportion of trees vo- voting for non-survival. That, mathematically, you can already see how can you relate that to the actual probability of survival, it doesn't actually make sense. There's no way that it's always gonna be the same. Okay. And then lastly, I'm gonna do a, just a bad model, which is a random guessing model. Uh, any questions on the random forest before I go? On? Yeah, uh, Louis, if you could just revisit the last um, comment you made around counting probabilities of okay. survival, because or counting survival, because yeah. is not so a probability that's the output, rather than no. Um, so f- when when we have five hundred decision trees. Each of them come to one outcome, survival or not. Okay. Uh, uh, it's, it actually uses 50% as a cutoff. If the tree is predicting probability of survival as bigger than 4. 0.5, it says the guy survived. And for each of the 500 trees, there's a survive or a not survive outcome. Okay, and then the, the random forest as a prediction uses the mix of counts. So if, if 300 of the trees predicted survival and 200 predicted death, the outcome of the random forest would be 0.6%, uh, 60% or 0.6, uh, numerically, of the, the outcome score. I, I, I try not to use probability, but some, sometimes you just do. The probability of the random forest, the size is 0.6. But that does not necessarily correlate with the actual probability of survival. It just says for this guy it's 0.6, the next guy is 0.7, so it's actually actually trying to differentiate people who survived and didn't survive, but it's not actually predicting the true underlying probability of survival. We'll see that later. I'll show you an example of how, how um, f- especially for categorical cases, often it's not that important to predict the probability of survival. It's more interesting to predict, to differentiate people who would survive and uh, who are more likely to survive and, and than and the, from those that are less likely to survive, okay? So now we get to what I think is probably, did I run this piece of code? Let me just make sure I run it, yeah. Okay, oh, so the the, the last model that I create is the random guessing model. It just assigns a random number between zero and one to each of my data points, okay? So that's a bad model. It's like doing a coin toss for each case. So I purposely wanted to do that so we can see how badly it performs at the end, okay? Okay, so we're gonna evaluate our models now on the test data. We're gonna look at what the test data does. Um, And and the reason we need to really look at this on the test data is because machine learning models often have a lot of controlling parameters. You saw with the the decision tree, there's a lot of stopping conditions. With the random forest, it's the stopping conditions of the individual trees as well as the hyperparameters for the random forest process itself. There's lots of other parameters I'm not gonna get into. so you can quite easily play with those parameters. There's so many parameter choices. You can actually end up with net picking the parameter choices that on your training data produces a really good outcome, right? A great prediction. Um, but when you go to the testing data, it's absolutely shocking because you've actually picked the parameter choices that by chance or that fits the random noise in the training data. You know. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, even sometimes with the statistical models, we end up in that sort of space. So I just want to show you roughly what we have at the moment. So this is an output of just a subset of our training data. And what we have is a data set now with all the parameters of the data, the actual survival status, as well as our predictions from each of the models. Yeah. So we essentially have a column for each of the predictions. Uh, sorry, I can't zoom out on this. So. Can I drag this? No, sorry, it's a little bit big. The actual survival status is over here, just off screen. Or maybe I can just, yeah, I can do that. Oops. Um, so you'll see this is the GLM prediction. This is the decision tree prediction for this particular case. And that's the, uh, I think this is the random yes no prediction, just the random guessing prediction. You can see this person actually survived. Our GLM predicted 66, uh, 66% chance, our decision tree predicted 26% chance, and the random guess was a random guess. Similarly, this one was pretty low scoring but actually survived, so that's probably more or less an error. So, by just by looking at this data, we can't actually tell, we can sort of get a sense of our models might be good or might not be good. Here, the decision tree produces high survival probability and they actually survived. So, the decision tree seemed to do well for those three cases. But to get an overall assessment of our model, we need to look at it bit high level. We got and look at it case by case, right? So one of the most convenient tools, oh. one of the things we need to also decide is, um, we, we, sometimes we don't wanna score, we wanna actually do something with the information, right? So the score doesn't tell us anything. We need to decide when are we gonna treat the person as a survivor, or when are we gonna treat the person as a, as a, as a, as a non-survivor. This might be a case where you're predicting underwriting decisions in your office from your, your underwriting data. You wanna say, at what point am I gonna assign the fact that I believe this, before, before being underwritten, I believe this case to be a standard rates case, and then I'm not gonna not send them for full underwriting. So you need to do something with the data. So you need to decide on a cutoff. Now the, the simplest cutoff to have is the 50% one, right? As, as long as the probability is over 50%, we're gonna do that. So what we've done that now is just with the GLM, we've done that, just to show you how it looks. So if the 0.66 is over 50%, we will sign a prediction of survival and this person actually survived. If it's below 50%, we assign don't survive. In this case, the person actually survived. There we have a match. And then we can tabulate this. And we can tabulate this as a confusion matrix. So most of you should have seen something like this. If you thought about type one, type two errors, or this is all coming from the confusion matrix. So what we do with the confusion matrix, we do a simple tabulation of predicted outcome and actual outcome. So we predicted, um, what, 117 people to survive, uh, yeah, to survive, and 90 of them survived. We predicted 200 and something for people to, um, 210 actually, 210 people to to not survive and 170 of them did not survive. This is, Remember this on the testing data, so the numbers changed, it's a little bit smaller now, right? We can convert that to probabilities like this and now we see, you know, we can get a sense of what, what how we're doing. So with a 50% cutoff, we can get a sense of how accurate our model is, okay? We have roughly, uh, if we think about, it, if we add these two numbers, we come up with an accuracy. That's a measure called accuracy. So that's, let's say, let's call it seventy percent accurate model. So it's accurate seventy percent of the time, and these are your different errors, right? I'm going to focus on a couple of measures that are often used in the in the in the in the modeling. One is. We've already got accuracy, oh sorry, it's 80%, 80% accuracy, um, and then sensitivity and specificity. Sensitivity is how many, case, how many, what proportion of the cases that survived did we accurately predict to survive? So of the people who actually survived, how many of them did we pick up, as, how did we predict as actually survive? So how specific is my model in finding the survivors? And the sensitivity is the other side of the coin. It's essentially how specific is my model for not finding for the, for the deaths. In this case, it's specific. Sorry, I, sensitivity is how many of the survivors, sorry, I mixed them up, that's terrible. Sensitivity is how many of the survivors that actually survived did my model predict the surviving? Which proportion of them? So I predicted 70% or 69% of the actual survivors are accurately predicted as surviving. Specificity is the other side. How many people, what portion of the people that died did I accurately predict as, as having died? And you as an actuary should immediately pick up that those, are, those offer a trade-off, right? I can now, if I think about it, I can start trading those things off. Because sometimes I would be more interested in something that's more sensitive, and sometimes I'd be more interested in something that's more specific, okay? Let's say I have a very dangerous cancer drug and I'm predicting whether a patient has cancer or not. I want to make sure that I don't accidentally treat people who are healthy. So I'm gonna favor one of the two. I can't think of which, which one of the two now. Uh, similarly, if I, have a, if I have a very safe cancer drug, I don't mind accidentally treating people who, are, who don't have cancer. So I'd be more favoring one side of the coin, right? So because the impact of your errors determine which, which error rate you want to optimize and I'll show this to you. Well, first I'll show you the impact on this. And i just calculate the same measures for the training data. The training data is usually a bit better. you can see the accuracy is a bit higher on the training data than the testing data because we use that data to train the model. So it's always gonna be better. So we already spoke about optimizing sensitivity and specificity, so if we change the threshold, remember we used the 50% cutoff to set that that error. If we use different cutoffs, the the results will be different. So if we use a 10% cutoff, so what we're saying here is we wanna, we'll predict you as having survived if your score is above 10%, so it's quite generous, right? You'll see we're very sensitive then, we'll pick up all the actual survivals, but we, miss, we miss predict, predict all the, the guys who didn't survive, right? And similarly, if we do the other side. I don't know, how you guys are doing for time? Should I rush or be happy? Okay, go grab a bite to each if you're really hungry. 10 minutes, yeah, okay. Um, and that's the other side of the coin. You can see that specificity went up, uh, used 90% as a cutoff, the, the sensitivity went down, the specificity went up. So you can already see there's a trade-off. Now, in a situation where we don't know the actual cost, we're gonna just generically assess the performance of the model, we actually want to assess the performance of the model for every possible sensitivity and, and uh, for every possible threshold or cutoff value. And this is essentially what the receiver operating characteristic curve is, the ROC curve, okay? It actually produces for every possible cutoff plots the sensitivity and the specificity. Yes. Yeah, the ROC curve is different to when you you have multiple outcomes it becomes a lot more complicated. You probably want to focus on them pairwise yeah, you know, category one and the other categories, category two and the other categories, and then you can probably do various spots. I haven't really worked with receiver operating characteristics and confusion matrices for for non for multiple outcomes. I prefer to target one outcome because usually you target it in either finding say the the standard cases or the declines. You're not always interested in predicting all of them accurately. But it does depend on your use case. But it does get a bit mind twisting to to figure out the error rates with multiple outcomes. So what this does is actually generates a plot. This is the curve itself, actually. So this is the this is the 50% threshold that we already sh- already looked at, and that's the sensitive. Sorry, get my bearings. That's a, that's the sensitivity and that's the specificity for a 50% cutoff. And if you vary that cutoff to the point 0.9 level, which we also showed, the sensitivity goes up and the specificity goes down. Sorry, the the tradition is to plot it as, as an inverse axis on the bottom, right? So that's just the way the curves look. So you should get a sense of that this model looks interesting, right? It's got this weird curve. The more the curve is into the corner, well, in that corner, the top, the, to, uh, the from your side, that you know that corner, um, uh, the better the model. Because for the same sensitivity, you get a better specificity. Or for the same specificity, you get a better sensitivity. So if the model was perfectly in the corner, that model accurate, accurately predicted every single outcome in the data, okay? You're never gonna get, if you get that in the corner, then you've stuffed up, pretty much, okay? Sometimes with some of the machine learning techniques, if you, if you do a ROC curve on the training data, it'll be perfectly in the corner because it actually, actually reproduces the training data exactly. So that's that's an example when you overfit. fit. Okay. So that's sensitivity and specificity. The area under that curve is a now a numerical measure, of, overall measure of the accuracy of that model. So you can measure the area under the curve. So if we look at that area, you know, If it's less than a half, if if this line was on the diagonal, it's a point toss model. It's a model that's not accurate at all. It's a random guessing model. So anything less than a half for that area under the curve is bad. One is perfect. So the closer your area under that curve is to one, the better your model. Okay. So that's what we do here. And we just summarize that there. The function already has it for us. So the area under the curve is 0.84, which is a pretty good decent model, right? This is now just the uh, GLM. Uh, There's also a Gini coefficient, which is directly a formula for the area under the curve. People also use the Gini coefficient. Um, the The area under the curve can also be interpreted as the probability that I have an actual surviving person well, if I took, take a random survivor and I take a random pe- person that died from my te- my my training from my test data, sorry, what is the probability that my model scores the survivor higher than the training uh, than the death? That is what, it's also, it's equivalent to saying that. So it's an area under the curve, but mathematically it's equivalent to saying what is the chances that my model produces a better prediction for, for somebody who survived? You can intuitively think that the area under the curve is not measuring the accuracy of the probability, it's measuring the ranking. Okay, I'll show you now. Can you guys still hear me? you fine. Okay, if you, huh? I didn't choose the venue. Um, so what we do here, just calculate that for a bunch of models. So we have the area under the curve for the training model, on the decision tree, for the testing, for the, oh, did I jump step, no. So you can see the area under the curve for various of our models, just to get an overall sense. You can see the, oh, sorry, I jumped a bit, sorry. Let's just do this one. So how does our random guessing model look? So the black line is our GLM, the red line is our random guessing model. You can see it's close to to a half, right? I think it does amazingly well for a random guessing model, but it's it's a pretty bad model. What you see the difference between that and the diagonal is just random noise. Can, let's let's see how over and underfitting looks in terms of RO seekers of or area under the curve. So I'm just showing those the normal decision tree model, the overfitted one and the underfitted one. So the normal model has on the training data, 83% uh, area under the curve, and it should usually be a bit worse on the testing data, right? The overfitted model is performing brilliantly on the training data, 91% AUC. But if you switch to the testing data, it goes poorly and it does worse than the normal model. So, because we overfitted the data, it overperforms on the training data and it underperforms on the testing data. That tells you already if you see that, you see a problem, right? The underfitted model actually performs poorly on both. Right? So that's okay in a sense, but at least you get what you what you what you paid for. So that should show you how that works. And graphically it looks like this. So you look at the ROC curves for those, you can see the black model is the normal model, the red one is the overfitted one and the blue line is the underfitted model. Okay, I should be done in about five minutes, so. Um, so that highlights to you how overfitting happens, right? And it shows you the over, you can spot overfitting sometimes when looking at the performance of the model the training and the testing data. and That's very different, you probably have a problem. Okay. Uh, there's various shortcomings of, um, oh, sorry. If we compare all the models, oh, I missed something. I missed a step somewhere. Let me just rerun everything. Sorry about that. Oh, I need to run this bit. If we now compare all the models, we see area under the curve for the random guessing model is about 56%. The GLM is 84%. The decision tree is not as good as the GLM in this case. And the random forest is slightly better than the GLM overall. Okay, We well, can look at it graphically as well. So you can see the blue is the decision tree. It actually performs better than the GLM down here, right? Overall, it's worse than the GLM, but if you were interested in a very specific model, a model with a high specificity, you might prefer the decision tree over the GLM because it performs better. The random forest tends to perform well overall, although there is some areas where the GLM slightly outperforms it, although you have to think about what the confidence intervals are there. If you were interested in a very sensitive model, I would probably choose the GLM. Because the GLM I can explain, the random forest I can't explain. Right? So this is where you need to start thinking about the implications of having a very complex model that you can't explain. And in that case, I'd probably go with the GLM. Especially if I'm up here. If I'm down here, I'll probably go with the decision tree. So the shortcomings of the RSC curve is it doesn't measure probabilities accurately. It just measures ranking. Okay, Does that make sense? I'll show it to you now. I'm just gonna notionally create a a new prediction. I'm gonna take my random forest prediction, I'm gonna add five to it. I'm gonna square it. Just a random transformation. It keeps the order, but it makes a random number out of it. So now my, my new random forest predictions is 31, 25, 34. It's just a weird number, right? It Doesn't say anything about probability. If I test the AUC of that variable, that prediction, I get up, this is transformed, right? I get exactly the same AUC. So that tells you, the AUC tells you how well is your model differentiating the two categories. It doesn't measure how accurate the probabilities are. Okay, and usually that's enough. But some cases, if this was a mortality analysis, you probably want the, prob- more, the probabilities to be accurate as well. Yeah? So just to measure them. Yeah, so I've already covered this. You want to know whether your model is interpretable, all that other stuff, so you can read through that. Okay, I think I've covered everything. I think the noise is gonna kill us from now on anyway. So. Um, yeah. If you have any questions, come up to me now and um, catch me later. You have my email. Um, so yeah, cool. Thanks for attending. I hope it was useful. Thanks.